0: Welcome to episode 25 of Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and all of us here at True Media hope you're staying safe and healthy during these crazy times. Our guest today, also dealing with some crazy times in the professional sense, she's Cynthia Freeland, data scientist for NFL Networks, and she's been grinding away with draft coverage on NFL Network and NFL.com ahead of this weekend's draft, which starts Thursday. In this episode, Cynthia and I will talk about her analytics-based mock draft and how it differs from traditional mocks and big boards, what prospects jump out to her from a data perspective, how she uses predictive analytics during the NFL season, dealing with the inevitability of being wrong in predictions, communicating data and working through resistance to analytics, listening to NFL personnel and translating their thoughts into data, the various tools that go into her modeling, such as computer vision, NGS data, and programming languages, her path through business school and ESPN to her current position, advice to women in the field, and her favorite marathon of the 20-plus that she has run. Cynthia is also hosting a Women in Football Draft special tonight, Wednesday night, on Twitch at 7.30 Eastern, so tune in for that or check out the replay. The URL is twitch.tv slash numbersgamesstream. We'll also add the link in our show notes, and you can check her Twitter account at cfreeland to find it after my conversation with Cynthia I'll be joined by True Media's DJ Bailey to react and talk about what we're looking forward to in this weekend's draft. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with NFL Network data scientist Cynthia Freeland. We are joined now on Expected Value by Cynthia Freeland, NFL Network data scientist dealing with predictive analytics and such. Cynthia, we appreciate you taking some time during this busy draft week. Before we get into the draft itself, let's talk about just what we're all dealing with nowadays. How has all this quarantining and such affected you and your work?
1: You know, I'm very lucky because everyone in my life is healthy, thank goodness. So really the thing that I'm trying to do is find some positive outlets and trying to turn this into something where I've made the most of my time, which can be easy. And then sometimes like it turns into wine o'clock a little bit too early. (laughs) I try my best here.
0: Yeah. Okay. So NFL draft this week, that's obviously a big thing for you. Lots of articles on NFL.com, including a mock draft that I think is different than most. Tell me what makes your mock draft unique from your traditional uh, big board and such.
1: Yeah, the one when we went through it, we were trying to approximate. So I was talking to my editor and I was talking to my, you know, everyone can do a mock draft based on rumor, sure. Like, that's great. Mm-hmm. You know what? Those people, they spend their life calling GMs, calling coaches to ask what the things that they're hearing are and kind of where you're going to place people. But I take a different approach kind of to all of my work. So we were trying to reflect that in the mock draft. So we we're trying to reflect how maybe a coach or front office would use their analytics staff as a tool belt. So, you know, creating where people should go, let's create a paradigm, meaning like, you know, just one year of performance. So who's going to give you the biggest uptick in win shares based on next year's performance. So quarterbacks in this case are valued a bit differently than perhaps, you know, the Bengals might value the opportunity to select Joe Burrow because in my model, the Cincinnati Bengals O-line is so not so great that it mm-hmm. was better for them to go get one of the free agent quarterbacks, like a Cam Newton or maybe a Jameis Winston, and then take Chase Young. So we went with one season worth of win share uptick and kind of best available of their need.
0: So it sounds like that's maybe the headline difference someone might notice, just kind of browsing through your mock draft and a typical mock draft. You have quarterbacks tend to be a little bit lower.
1: It's not necessarily lower. It's because the market for substitutes this year is mm. very strong. We've never had such a strong substitute. You know, Typically, it's like one or two quarterbacks maybe sort of kind of move. But this year, it's like they put everyone in a jar, shook it up, and then re- <laughs> reallocated <laughs> them. So it's just a bit different, right, when you have these big names still available. It's very rare that you have someone who recently, as recently as 2015, went to a Super Bowl available in the free agent market this late in the game.
0: Anyone, as you crunch all the numbers, who jumps out to you from a data perspective? Maybe they're uh, further down most big boards and the numbers suggest that they might be undervalued?
1: The one I expect to go to, like I think a team's going to get a good value on, who I have ranked very high, Isaiah Simmons. I know people have talked about him as being very good, but in terms of like how to use him, he's such a multiple weapon and he lined up in so many different positions and he played so many different roles on the defense that it's interesting to see who will take him because I think he could slip like a little and by slip, I mean like eight, maybe nine Mm -hmm. and end up somewhere really amazing. Like if Carolina could get their hands on him, that could be a really interesting difference. And I think people, they just don't know how to kind of value him given this like quarterback market and people jumping around and the top five being like in flux, like are the Redskins going to, you know, give up the number two pick because they don't have very many picks in the draft and a bunch of needs. Like, you know, there's all this speculation. So he's one who could, I'm not going to say slip because top 10 is a really nice draft position, but you know, maybe be a bit undervalued in terms of, I think he could be one of those, you know, pro bowlers, instant impact day one, like very, very, very solid selections.
0: I want to ask about your uh, quarterback article that you put up today about, uh, best analytics based team fits for the top five quarterbacks. More, I'm interested kind of in the methodology. So you have, let's see, Burrow and Tua and Herbert, all worth the way you crunch the numbers of three plus wins for these teams that may draft them. So the process, what's kind of the methodology as you crunch numbers to figure out how these teams and these quarterbacks might work together?
1: So I spent a lot of time creating a metric that we call windshare. If you have a better title for it, I'm very like
0: open
1: to it because <laughs> it, it's like not the sexiest title, but whatever. So, you know, I, I, I cared more about what it was than the title. But ultimately I took a perspective of on each play in the past, how does it relate to the drive? So you know, I I didn't want to undervalue or overvalue if someone didn't touch the ball. Obviously, quarterback touches the ball on every offensive snap for the most part, right? Like vast majority. So I wanted to try to relate everything to drive. So you know, if you're if a quarterback's constantly scrambling, holding onto the ball for too long, and getting you know negative yardage, right, for the team, mm-hmm. then that's like a a minus, right? So you add all those things together. So a quarterback can be plus three, and then you know your running back can be minus one, and then it ends up in two games, right? So at the end of the at the end of the season the total for every player on the team ends up being the total of game number of games that they won. So the pluses and minuses add up. The mm-hmm. interesting part for for the top two quarterbacks in this one was, and and even three with Justin Herbert, but how projecting how much playing time a player would get, it was a pretty easy for Joe Burrow in the sense that it's it's quite presumable based on every, you know, when, when we went through and when I vetted it with kind of, you know, I, am really lucky. I get a chance to ask coaches, Hey, does my math look pretty much right on here? And they, they're very generous with being like, yeah, you can, you can assume Joe Burrow's a day one starter. Right. But then mm. you go past that and it's like, well, if I'm pairing Justin Herbert with the dolphins, which is my third ranked pick. Is it presumable he's going to have to start the full slate of games? And they're like, no, you know, maybe maybe put like four game starts for Ryan Fitzpatrick and then value him with the remainder as the starter. So Tua, you know, that, that kind of thing, would with, with Tarad, Taylor, would he start or not? So it's pairing a potential. So first you go, how, what, how many games are they expected to play? Then you add in kind of the profile based on a historical reference. So it's like looking for doppelgangers in the past and kind of what happened in the past in these situations to try to find similar similar outcomes. And that's kind of how those things map together.
0: No, That makes a lot of sense. So we've touched on a lot of what you do that's draft-related, personnel-related, and such. During the season, as a data scientist dealing with the predictive analytics, what are you doing for NFL Network for those who aren't familiar with your work?
1: Yeah. Well, it usually manifests in some in very infuriating to people who don't understand how <laughs> math works. What should happen in the game? So I simulate each game. I simulate also the rest of the season. So it's kind of like a moving, you know, expected wins going to going to not mm-hmm. at your expected value um and uh it's it's a moving average so you know there'll be every thursday we put out you know my what are my projected game scores and obviously people get mad about this right because they don't like seeing 22s or 26s even though that's happened more often this season than most but ultimately it it projects out the most likely scenarios like i said from that doppelganger so i take you know, the historical reference 10 seasons is about right because the game does change and shift over the course of time with a really high, you know, uh, so 10 seasons totals historical reference. And then about the past four to eight games, but it's really coach dependent because each coach has different tendencies and you really map together the players the personnel the tendencies against whoever they're facing player personnel tendencies and then you run that simulation kind of like Madden if you play video games and you run it like 10,000 100,000 times it just depends on how much time and computing power i have sometimes you know my computer's slower than others um, and, and play it plays out the game with the most likely scenario. So I'm a top-down modeler, so I go from that projected score, those projected drive outcomes, and then I map out each player's projected performance from the top-down, and then that will help with fantasy, too. So it's kind of everything numbers related to the game.
0: You mentioned how fans and social will get mad at you sometimes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just How do you deal with... I use this term loosely, like being wrong, and I put that in quotes because I think we know that you're up, you're not always projecting exactly what happened as much as a range of outcomes and things like that. But how do you deal with kind of the reaction and just know you're putting so much information out there that you're going to hit a lot of stuff, you're going to miss a few things. How do you kind of deal with that, kind of from a psych- psychological standpoint?
1: You know, the, that's been the hard, the, the hardest part because I'm actually a very extroverted introvert, <clears throat> so mm-hmm. so it's it it's very um, nerve wracking to put your information out there because you are yeah. going to be wrong far more often than you're going to be right. It's just the things that you feel that you're, that my model projects strongly. Those are more right. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. We put out all of the scores because it's no fun just to be like, here are the five I like the most, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like here's what I have on everything. But I usually try to emphasize the things I feel the most strongly about or the model suggests that I feel the most strongly about. So I try actually, I do try from, people whose voices, like the get back in the kitchen is funny because I actually like really love it. So that one actually makes me laugh. Like I don't mind at all, but I try to just show the process. And then, you know, skewness is something that I think about a ton, right? So I try to see if I'm, I try to be really honest with myself to be like, am I biased in any way? And did I, did I under or overestimate something? Can I learn something from this reaction? Cause you can typically see for example, two seasons ago, um, I think it was like the Bills beat the Vikings like super unexpectedly, right? Like, yes. yeah, right. And it was interesting because I had the Vikings win and they were heavy favorites. And I had, you know, I had the model saying it was like only 55%, which is in relative value, right? Like I was relatively more on the side of the Bills than, than I was on the side of the, the Vikings. So when I looked back at that, I was like, okay, well, some of it is that they didn't necessarily understand that 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 directionally means something, and that and that's on me to communicate better, um, and to you know to communicate my findings better. That's something great I can learn there. But then otherwise, like, all right, we're supposed to be entertaining people, and that's the fun part and connecting to the sport. So half of the fun is you know, being like poking fun at your friends when they're wrong. So the people who are good natured with it, like, I think it's fun. I'm good with being wrong, clearly, because I put it out there every week and it is it, like it's gut wrenching for sure. But at the same time, put it out there with me and play a game with me and we can have fun and we can actually become like sort of friends through, you know, all these different mediums that, that that are available to us.
0: So you talked about communicating and we touched on that a lot on this show. Uh, What are your keys to kind of communicating data? Uh, Probability is always a tough thing to get across sometimes, particularly when you're dealing with non-analytics types, whether it's, you know, a viewer, whether it's people you're on shows with, Uh, what are your keys to communicating that data effectively?
1: One of the things that has helped me the most is I have, so (laughs) this sounds strange, but so my sister lives in Denmark. And her two daughters, they are bilingual, Danish and English, and they're like 12 and 14. And if Mm -hmm. they understand what I'm saying, then um, (laughs) then we're good. So I try to think about them and keep them in mind because they like love me and care about me. So they're gonna try more harder (laughs) (laughs) instead of instead of you know trying to figure it out. So um, for me, it's it's all about like I I ask for feedback on that. Like I I try to be mindful that you know, I'm lucky, like I like this stuff and it's interesting to me. And so like, I'm, I'm lucky I have a platform to be able to like talk to people about it. So it's on me to learn how to become the best communicator possible, because that's, that's where I have special sauce, you know, like to be able to do this math. Some people don't like the math so much. They're not interested in it. So if, if I'm lucky enough to be able to do that, then That's fantastic, right? So I try to like take it as like a positive thing, right? And be like, okay, it's on Mm to figure out how to explain it better. It's frustrating, let's be clear, but I try to remember like I want people to play along with me. I want everyone to have their own model, and I want to see your model against my model, and then we can like laugh about it or like be right or like you know, it's fun. It's it can be it's sports. It should be fun.
0: Yeah, if we can't have fun, then what are we doing? I like how you said it about you have someone in mind. I know when I'm trying to get points across, I always think of like my dad, who's very much. You know average sports fan who's big into sports maybe not as big into the numbers yep. but if i can in my head get that to him or someone like him then you know you got a good shot at uh, getting it across to anybody uh, how do you deal with the resistance that you run into from non analytics types i mean you're dealing with a lot of uh, players front office you know former players former front office people at nfl network and such uh, how do you deal with that pushback you might get uh, from those people who are maybe trying to figure it out maybe they're a little more antagonistic but how do you deal with with that pushback
1: so luckily For me, I've been here for, you know, the the longer you're here and the more they see you grind and work and and, and speak their language, the easier it becomes. So I was very lucky that everyone that had a little bit of resistance, I've tried to ask them for help. Because if you watch film with someone and they see how hard you're trying to relate the concepts that make sense to them into something that is a little less accessible, like I'm not expecting people to know how to code. I'm not expecting people to learn computer vision, but I'll sit there and watch film with you and then I can show you where that is in my work right? And how that's reflected. So asking for their opinions and really thinking about empathy, like I think a lot about empathy. I think a lot about these coaches have had to deal with, think about the things that they've had to deal with in their, they got probably got yelled at as like, you know, and all the way up, they, you know, they're like being sort of like, you know, reinforced over and over again, like, this is the way we do it. This is the way we do it. Just like every other industry, you know, so you have to, you have to think about where they're coming from and their perspective and also you know if you if you ask smart questions like i don't waste their time right if i'm lucky enough to have an audience with a a head coach i'm not gonna say whether whether or not i like whatever i think about their coaching but i know all of them are the 32 best at the thing that they do in the entire world that's amazing so i sit there and i'm like all right i'm not gonna waste their time hey what was the safety supposed to be doing on play 47 i don't understand (laughs) And then they love being able to answer a question. If you've done your homework, they will They will help you out, right? Like I'm, I'm not a reporter. I'm not trying to break news. I'm not trying to do anything but like shine a light. And luckily, what, the advantage we have in data is like for every play that's bad for someone, it's actually equally and oppositely good for someone else. So, Mm. you know, you can tell the story a number of different ways, right? But it's not, it's not, you know, finagling the data. It's just saying, you know, this tackles also, it's a great tackle or it's a, it's a stopped run, right? Like, you know, there's always a way to kind of tell either way.
0: Yeah. The idea of taking kind of what they say and and input it into a model is really interesting to me. Do you have an example of that process of maybe a a coach or player said something and you, you know, gets the wheels turning and you figure out how to quantify that into a model?
1: Yeah, so I spent probably the the first thing that ever earned me respect with any coach was I sat and I talked to Russ Grimm, who's an O-line coach, historic one, also Washington Redskins, like just very, very, like he was a player, then he was a seasoned coach, like the best. Russ Grimm's probably, when it comes to O-line, like I don't know if you learn it, better from anyone and he told me that he likes me as a person but there was nothing he could ever I could ever say that would be interesting to him from anyone. <laughs> and I was like I think that's wrong Russ. And I was like you t-, I was like what would be interesting and he's like t- you tell me who a waist bender is so I spent years figuring out how to measure with commuter vision the butt the knee the ankle the back angle of tackles and guards I still haven't perfected it for centers because it, it honestly the game footage, all 22s or any any footage you get, the center is really hard to measure because there's two guys around him at least, right. right? So, you know, so ultimately I figured out how to then take who was a waistbender in the league and then map it backwards. And then I found luckily that the first 10 split of their 40, if they can keep their bum down for the, like within a range relative to their height, it's about it's about a three inch range total, which is very, very like a small range. Um, because these guys are huge uh, they end up w- far less likely to become wastebenders in the league and then he's like give me examples and I was like well you got two of them and now no longer a Tennessee Titan but Jack Conklin Taylor Lewont, they keep their butts down and he's like okay <laughs> he started to he started to come around and he's like all right all right all right and he he was into it so <laughs> that took a lot of time and effort and energy for like one like drink, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, yeah. we can go get a beer now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a good example. I like it a lot. Uh, you mentioned the computer vision thing a couple times, and you reference in your articles a lot. Can you give us kind of the overview of what that is and how you use it?
1: Sure. If you're not super familiar with computer vision or what it does, just think of the yellow line in on you know the the first down marker or the line of scrimmage. So obviously those aren't really there in real life, but the 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 technology allows you to draw lines over. The broadcast so what i do is ingest the film and i take lines very similar to that or circles sometimes triangles it's getting real fancy over here Ooh. and um and i take those elements then it's an interesting part of those elements to measure them relative to each other. Got it. Like I try to create paradigms. Like, so, you know, like for example, pressure's tough for my naked eye because what you think is a defensive pressure, what I think is, I don't know if that's the same, right? Like, I'm not sure. So what I took in that case was I drew a circle around a quarterback and then your most human beings feel the vision is 135 degrees. So I took 135 degrees kind of on every direction. And then as I'm moving my head, back and forth or as quarterback, not me, but as they're moving their head back and forth, they try to follow it. And if a defender comes within a a five foot halo of a quarterback in his field of vision, that's a pressure. So Mm -hmm. it can be wrong. Let me, let me be clear there. It's not perfect, but if you create the recipe, then another person could recreate the cookies. Then to me, it's at least an interesting, it's at least like defensible. I just don't like when people like kind of claim their thing is like infallible, right? Like I'll tell yeah. you what I did to to approximate something and I'll tell you where the limitations are. But at the same time, I'll, you know, I, I try to ask coaches, while before I go through and use computer vision and measure like thousands of hours of film, I try to make sure that's something that a coach would be like, all right, you know, that that's pretty cool, right? So, yeah. you know, that's actually something I would listen to. So I try to like come up with the, you know, the paradigms before I measure everything.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. How how have the NFL's next gen stats, the tracking data they've had over the last few years, how has that changed and helped what you're doing in your work?
1: The number one thing that's changed is that there's enough, they're starting to become enough of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So the first year they had it, it's it's for people who aren't familiar, it's basically like GPS data at any time on the field. So it really does tell you motion and speed. And speed's not super interesting always, right? Because you reach a top speed, it's probably busted coverage, and you know that guy's going to score a touchdown anyways, right? Like, (laughs) because you're not going to get up to your top speed, you know, if you're in a bunch of traffic in the middle of the field. So, Mm -hmm. um, but it does tell. It can tell you. A lot of amazing things but when you only have like one or two seasons worth of the data it's really hard to say as this is a pattern or this is a trend or you know this is something that like really is meaningful you know the game changes the the situation changes it doesn't necessarily tell you if um, the defender that they burned was a really good corner or not so good of a corner you have to impute that and so as we're coming along with it, their use cases and the ability to take that data and make it into something really helpful, it just keeps growing and growing. So like anything yeah. else, the more you have of it, the more you can do with it. But that one season was hard.
0: Yeah, I bet. I want to get into your background, uh, academic and professional path, because I think it's a little different than, I don't know, if there's a traditional way to get into analytics now, but this pro- yours probably is not it. So let's, let's just start. What was your academic and career path to your current role?
1: I. Thought I would be a doctor. My sister's a doctor, so she's the good one. I'm the bad one. <laughs> uh, I went to. I'm from East Lansing, Michigan. Um, I went to Boston College for undergrad. I was a biology major. Real helpful now.
2: Um,
1: and I then I transitioned to um, banking after college. Um, and from banking, I realized what I, I didn't actually. This sounds weird and it's especially in this like economic climate. If you remember, like 2005 when I graduated, you know, it was before that other recession. So I didn't know private equity. I didn't know what it was when I was first getting into it, but I got a little lucky in that I met someone that was like, I like the way your brain thinks. I'll teach you what you need to know. So I went and I worked in private equity, which that sounds so like bougie now, but that's at the time, totally different world, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah and it was telling stories using numbers, and I loved it. And it was defending positions and finding comparables amongst things that, didn't even seem like they were the same thing. And I loved like finding that. I loved scouting the data in different ways and making it so like, you know, defensible. Like how, like I always could poke holes in my own data really well. So I could tell a good story with that. And that was kind of my first foray. Then business school was a good opportunity for me because I, with that biology background, I didn't even, (laughs) I was always good at math. let me be clear. But like the biology background didn't really help me (laughs) when I was writing financial models. So I went, I started at business school and, um, there's a man named Anthony Noto who was the former CFO of the NFL and he had been Goldman Sachs. I had read his equity research reports when he was at Goldman. He started at the NFL. I cold emailed him being like, I want to come work for you in financial strategy for the NFL during my business school summer. So he was generous and kind and allowed me to do that. I have to sidebar here my full circle. He was actually, so since being CFO of the NFL, he went back to Goldman, took Twitter public ascended to the COO of Twitter, left Twitter for SoFi, and now he's the CEO of SoFi. And yesterday, I saw him on the TV talking on CNN. <laughs> so it's all, it all comes full, It forward. all comes around, yeah. It all comes around. So, um, so Anthony let me come work for him at the league, and that's where I first worked on a project, season inventory restructuring. So again, ahead of the last CBA. I'm an OG here. And uh, ahead, <laughs> it was like, is 16 and 4 the right configuration, 17 and 3, how many buys, what's the... So I sat with the competition committee, which is the best of the best coaches and people who understand like breaking down film. And I, I had to, I was charged with translating that into financial modeling and sat in, in dark rooms and we ate snacks. I, I'll do anything for a snack. I love a good snack. We watched film. It was great. And then I translated into, into math. And that's kind of how everything sort of started from that. And it took me that, that path kind of took me in a more traditional role back to ESPN or to, to Disney and then to ESPN. And then I did also get, I should mention that I got my uh, master's in predictive analytics. The, the degree now is called data science. So that helped me because it really allowed me, it, I taught myself how to code. I'm not the world's best coder, but I'm, you know, I know what I need to know and computer vision is hard, but if you're sufficiently motivated, you can learn how to do it. And then took me through ESPN and then Paul DiBodesta got hired and then kind of transitioned Mm -hmm. to more of an on-air storytelling role and then went back to the NFL ultimately because it allows me to work with both teams and talk on a platform that that really kind of magnifies what analytics and how analytics are growing. But it also, instead of being multiple sports, I can really go deeper into the one vertical.
0: That's a lot of stuff. And that I love hearing people's stories because I think it's interesting to just to see what kind of doors and opportunities are out there for everybody. So a couple follow ups. Why teach yourself how to code? Like what was your thinking behind that? And what would you how would you recommend someone thinking about that now?
1: I figured out that as good as Excel was for helping me write models, like, you know, look, I, I had, you know, again, I feel really old, but back in the day, banks used yeah. to send you to this this Excel training camp, right? You'd go for like a weekend and Mm. get really fast. And then we would kind of race each other in the office, be like, do you know this shortcut? Whatever. Like it used to be like a thing. And then realize that no matter what, there's limitations to Excel. And there was a lot more I could do, especially if I didn't have to think of everything structured in rows and columns. So then when I was, when I was looking at what you could do, I had friends who were working at Citadel which is a hedge fund and they're like you should learn how to code because then you can look at things like relative you know relational databases so relative to each other in a different way than how you initially input the data because how you input it like absolutely gives the potential for what the outcomes of the use of the data happens to be so if you can put them in in a way that allows you to use it in more multiple ways then now you've really you really have something there
0: yeah. And what sort of languages have been particularly useful to you from a coding perspective?
1: You need to know R and Python because that's like the shell of everything, right? I'm like a relational database girl. So I know people. some people think it's old, but Hive and Pig, which are Hadoop languages, basically allows you to be ADD with your database once you've edited sure. your data, which is great for me. Um, and then TensorFlow is really helpful with computer vision. So those are kind of those are the ones I talk about the most. I don't get into I, I don't get into much front end stuff at all. I know some people like love to make beautiful displays, but and like Tableau is amazing. I right. like look at Tableau stuff, and we did use it in my degree a lot. But ultimately, for me, we don't have that capability of putting it out on NFL.com. So I'll look at Tableau for like you know just charts and beautiful outputs that it has. But I don't I don't spend as much time in that as mm-hmm. as other people do. But R and Python, that's where you start. All
0: right, what is your Advice to get more women, more diversity in the sports analytics field. I mean, I don't have to tell you that you know there aren't a ton of people kind of doing what you do uh, that are, who are women. So, what's your kind of baseline advice? Obviously, we could do a whole podcast on this, but yeah. what's kind of your baseline advice if you're talking to a, a woman who's looking to get in the field or guys who want to get pull more diversity in?
1: So, I think the, there's two things. The first is to recognize where are you strong and where are you weak and relate that to your risk aversion. So I'm super strong in math and I'm super strong in. I, I think I'm a pattern thinker. I'm not necessarily, people try to like, come up to me like, what's 76 times 436? I'm like, you get a calculator, I don't, I'm not a calculator, <laughs> right? Like I don't care, but right. I think of patterns really well. And I can relate things that aren't inherently math two patterns that's that's where i'm really strong the place where i'm not as strong is figuring out okay how can i take the deep association like i, I know how to go back with the stats i i love the stat people who are are so stat strong i'm less strong in that so i know to take my findings and vet them with someone who is a real true the that deep quant i'm the pattern quant not the not that like and and i so i'm smart to go take both I I get the idea from the coach and then I vet it with the coach. And then I take what I find and I go vet it with the real math people. So know where you are I'm the pattern person in between. I translate it so everyone can talk to each other, but I'm not the deep stats person, nor am I the coach. So know where you're strong and know, know where you're adding value and know where you need to rely on the chain, your chain of command, your horizontal or your vertical chain of how you're integrated, right? And provide yeah. unique value and make sure you are able to communicate that value. Cause that's a really hard part for a lot of us quants. And then on the other side, you need to know and be comfortable with your risk aversion or your risk, how risk tolerant you are, because this is not a career for the faint of hearted. If you need to feel validated a lot, or if you need a steady job and you have, you know, three kids, it's really hard to like, you know, go take the time to, maybe not make as much money and go back and learn some things you didn't know. Or if you need to go coaching, if you want to go in, in any way in coaching, you're going to have to take likely like that. They don't get paid great until they become the head coach. Right. So mm-hmm. until they become a coordinator, so you have to understand your relationship to risk and who are you with it? Risk is risk. I think sometimes people don't understand how bad something could feel or good something could feel or how bad it has to feel until it feels good. Right. So It's a real relationship with like being very honest with yourself about that. And then I guess there's one more tenant to this. Stay strong where you're strong and cultivate that side of yourself, but recognize that you can also improve your weaknesses. Like for me, I was not trained in broadcasting at all. So in order to get over myself, because a lot of us in math with math brains, Mm perfect introverted, very like get nervous on this. I had to take an improv class, right? That improv class just helped me just get over yourself. That was, that was what I needed. Right. Like that was awful. That's not my forte, right? Like I hated it, but because I did that, it helped me feel, like I said, just to get over myself, like to to help me feel more confident with the fact that like, okay, like, you know, take a breath. And if someone doesn't understand you the first time, like figure out how to make it better and do better the next time, but get over yourself. Don't you don't hold it in for too long. So make up for some of your deficiencies, but always continue to feed the places you're strong.
0: So semi-related on that note, you're hosting a Women in Football Drafts special uh, Wednesday night. We're taping this uh, Wednesday morning. Tell mm-hmm. us about this and and what's going on and where people can watch it.
1: Yeah. So the cool part about, like I said, trying to make positive in this Corona situation. With all of the streamlined broadcasts, so ESPN and NFL Network are doing one joint broadcast, first time we've ever done. It. And by the way, it's all remote. It's gonna. I'm I'm so impressed with how these producers are able to. Yeah. All, I mean, it's insane, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. So difficult, but it leaves the opportunity for a streaming op, a streaming offering with cross-network talent which is very cool right so yeah i'm lucky because the women in this entry we all kind of have to like look out for each other and we have different points of view and they're so generous with their time we're gonna have like 32 names just kind of giving you like the an update on each team or what they're hearing obviously we're gonna talk a little tom brady and gronk because we got to and then we can't not do that and we're just gonna come together on twitch which is owned by amazon Amazon's a big league partner, so it's really helpful for us. And by the way, Twitch is a sick platform, super innovative, like really fun to to kind of be in this new space, trying this new thing. It could go horribly wrong. I'm like not, I'm not really a host. I'm like not really a host, not really a producer. My rundown is in Excel. Yep, that's true. It's nobody does that. Um, So you know, ultimately just trying to like have, create like positive talk about something that's coming up. Like how exciting is a draft? We have not a lot else going on these days. So let's just see all these women, like what they're up to check in. And I'm really feel lucky. Like, you know, almost everyone was allowed to some, sometimes there's always considerations that, you know, networks have when they work with each other, but almost everyone was allowed to work together. So it was pretty cool.
0: Very cool. And that's 7.30 Eastern uh, tonight, Wednesday night on Twitch. And you can ch- catch the replay there too. We'll have the link in our show notes. All right. We're going to wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we run through just a number of your favorites. So tell me what your favorite number is and why.
1: My favorite number is 108 because it's divisible by so many different things. I know it's ridiculous, but I think about it a lot. I really like it.
0: <laughs> these, are the, these are the nerdy reasons that we love here. Uh, Who's who your favorite athlete when you were growing up?
1: Uh, well, Barry Sanders was my favorite athlete growing up.
0: Right, growing up in Detroit, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you have a favorite game that you've attended? It could be, you know, as a kid, in a professional aspect, just favorite game that you've attended.
1: Yeah, I think the Super Bowl in Houston, Atlanta, and uh, the New England Patriots. Mm-hmm. It was my first uh, Super Bowl for the NFL Network. I like, I got on the field. You know, I was lucky enough to be on the the pre pregame show on game day morning, and I like cried my eyes out in my stage. I am <laughs> so, so grateful to be there, and then it turned out to be like. I mean, obviously I had two great games right in a row, but that one was the first one. So hard to, hard to pick between that and Minnesota. And, but I'm, I, I will never not feel lucky to be at any game ever, but that one especially was like, that was my first one. It was insane.
0: That kind of leads me to the next one. Favorite, and maybe it's the same, favorite how did I get here moment? Just one of those moments where you're like, man, this professional career arc has gotten me these cool places and I can barely believe it. So favorite how did I get here type of moment?
1: Yeah, I think probably, I mean, look, every time it doesn't get old to be on the, field of the Super Bowl, I'm like, I am a girl from the middle of nowhere in Michigan and like what's yeah. going on here. And like I said, my same stage manager, always we take a picture every year because I always cry and it, I'm not a big crier in general, but it is overwhelming. And then Steve Mariucci comes up and, you know, he's a coach of the lions and he feels like my uncle and it's just, it's always, it's, it's, it's magic. It is, it is magic. Yeah. And I will never not, never not appreciate it.
0: That's great. And I'll close with this. I believe you've run over 20 marathons in 20 different states. So first, I guess we need to get, what's the official total at right now? And then do you have a favorite marathon of all those?
1: We do. So 23 is the official total. That's where we're at. My most recent one was Alaska, where I saw a black bear while I was running the marathon, which was very distracting and also made me (laughs) work harder. That my favorite is probably, I think, I think probably Chicago, um, because I was living in Chicago at the time, my entire, like everyone I knew was there and it was just like a really special race. That's the one, if you're going to ever run a big race, that's the one I would recommend. And I've done New York. I haven't done Boston yet, but, um, I've done New York and LA and a lot of other big ones. And then my favorite small ones, Montana, Missoula.
0: Nice. Very good. Love it. All right. That'll wrap things up for this episode of Expected Value. Cynthia Freeland, NFL Network data scientist. Thanks for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Cynthia Freeland for joining us on the show. Follow her on Twitter at C Freeland. That's C F R E L U N D. Read her work on NFL.com. Check out our show notes for links to her mock draft and more. I'm joined now by True Media's analytics manager, DJ Bailey, who listened in on that interview. DJ, one thing that kind of stood out to me is just her background, I think, is really interesting. It's a little more of a business analytics background. And I think as we heard her explaining her modeling, uh, and different things that she does, we saw how that slightly different angle manifests itself in her work, which I always find that fascinating because analytics is such a, a newer field that people come to it from a lot of different ways. And hers, I think, is is as non-traditional as there is a... As much there is a traditional way to do it, hers is, is not that. And the business side is really interesting. And just coming at it a little more from maybe a front office perspective, especially uh, when it comes to the mock draft, I think is, is pretty interesting. Kind of, What did you, you kind of pull out of that conversation?
2: Yeah, she you know she's approaching it as if she was part of the analytics department of a team and how they would kind of feed coaches and the GM kind of like information and data. And uh, she was talking about how they do kind of like a win shares uptick, how each kind of prospect would add wins to a particular team if they were drafted by them. And what I also found interesting was how the model was a little different for quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. How, you know, this draft is considered pretty QB heavy with Tua and Burroughs and how actually the since the substitute market is pretty high with uh, Cam New and Jameis Winston, it was actually recommending to kind of get those players over rookie quarterback who yeah. might not see the field a lot in the first year. So I, I found right. all that very interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot, especially, and just kind of get into kind of what we're looking for for the drafts. Like, I'm a Dolphins fan, so obviously the quarterbacks are very interesting to me at the top. Um, I don't know who the right answer is. I just know I want the Dolphins to get a quarterback for the future. You know, they've been kind of trying for 20 years to find the next Dan Marino. Not that you're going to draft a Hall of Famer, but just give me, you know, uh, a guy who can get you to the playoffs and win the games, especially now that Tom Brady and such as out of the division so I'm just hoping for let's find the quarterback I'm not sure if it's Tua I'm not sure if it's Justin Herbert Uh, I don't think they're going to trade up to get Joe Burrow but who knows Um, so I just hope as a fan of this draft I'm just hoping the Dolphins can find the right QB that can be the guy for the next 10 years because Tannehill didn't work out so well that he was good last year with Tennessee somehow Uh, and I like that the Dolphins don't have to start whoever it is immediately they've got Fitzpatrick for another year He'll be a mentor, give the rookie time to grow. So that's kind of what I'm watching for in the draft, selfishly. Uh, what do you have your eye on?
2: A lot of teams need need QBs, seems to be the case every year. But as a Patriots fan, we find ourselves in a kind of a unique situation where we yeah. need a quarterback. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't have the fifth pick in the draft like the Dolphins do, but um, it will be intriguing to see what Belichick and company kind of does with their picks. Do they trade up? Do they trade down? Do they take a quarterback in the first or just kind of ride with what they got? So I think this is going to be a very interesting draft and they could go many different directions.
0: Yeah, if the Patriots draft any quarterback, you know, at any point, that's going to be a huge story because, you know, they've got Brady, Garoppolo, all these guys who have, you know, been late picks over the last few years. Yes. If they draft, you know, some random guy in the seventh round from you know Eastern Illinois or something. Like that's going to be a big story. So that'll be fun to watch. Uh, anything else you kind of got your eye on?
2: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fantasy football player and this is a, uh, pretty wide receiver, heavy draft and I'm in a, a dynasty league. So I definitely got my mm. eyes on where those guys are going to land. I know there's a lot of teams who, who need receivers and, you know, from Jacksonville to, uh, Las Vegas, which is weird, um uh, calling <laughs> yeah. Las Vegas, but, <laughs> For sure. uh, so I'm definitely keeping my eye on the, uh, five or six players that could potentially go in the first round
0: yeah those receivers are always fun because yeah big talent but where you land is so important rookie receivers such a a wide variety of outcomes and all that so yeah it'll be fun to watch that'll wrap things up for this episode of expected value thanks again to cynthia freeland for joining us on the show thanks to uh, listener jason russell for suggesting cynthia as a guest if you have guest ideas hit us up on twitter at true media sports or me at paul carr Email us, like Jason did, expected value at truemedianetworks.com. We've had lots of NFL guests on the show over the last few months, so check our archives. You can listen to Mike Lopez, the league's director of football analytics, Gio Capadia, Mike Sando from The Athletic, Eric Eager from PFF, Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders, and more. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word across social media and however possible. We do appreciate the five-star review, kind words from a listener named Natasha earlier this month on Apple Podcasts. On behalf of DJ Bailey and everyone else at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Stay safe, everyone.